Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. I am Jasmine. She is Nemo. And we are here to give you episode 10 that's five fingers two times uh this is our last episode for season two um and we're very excited to bring this episode to you but before i get into the topic nemo how are you doing today i'm doing well we're back at our by now you guys know our regular meeting monday meeting time um but i'm doing well i can't complain i've been in a been in a good headspace um excited about this longer these longer days like it was six o'clock and I was just standing outside looking outside the window at the sun like this is beautiful um but how are you doing I'm doing well I'm trying to understand the weather it's snowing then it's 50 then it's snowing again then it's raining but we all know in the northeast summer doesn't really start till like June so I'm just I'm just waiting on June um but this episode like I mentioned is our last episode Today, we're going to be going over, I'll call them current events happening across the United States in urban planning. We're going to be talking through two topics that are kind of near and dear to Nemo and my hearts, and that is transportation and housing. And so the first area that we're going to be looking at is universal basic mobility. Think universal basic income, but transportation. And then the second topic we're going to be focusing on is Amazon, the world's largest retailer. They have just created a fund for affordable housing. So we're going to dig into that as well. Um, Stay tuned for a wonderful episode. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and get us started um, without further ado. Um, Loki, that actually bothers me when people say that. So I'm mad at myself. (laughs) I just said it, (laughs) but we're going to go ahead and jump into it. So as Jasmine mentioned, um, the transportation topic that we are covering today is universal basic mobility or UBM. Um, And this is something that we've seen a lot about in the last year. So we wanted to talk about it. And so what is universal basic mobility? It's defined by Bloomberg, who first started um, discussing this topic in 2018 as a system of partnerships and or policies that provide a minimum level of mobility to all members of society. And so some of the pilots that we're gonna look at focused on specifically lower income populations and how transportation and access to transportation can be a barrier. Um, But I think with universal basic mobility and the options that they provide, there's still a lot of considerations that need to be made for just how we are very car centric as a country um, and what uh, some of the goals are for the program is the goal to save people time by giving them access to different transportation options? Is it to save people money by lumping um, transportation services together and how they pay for them, whether some folks are doing cash, cashless options or um, for people who may only have access to cash, um, making it accessible for them as well? And then is the purpose or goal of universal basic mobility to improve the environment 
we've seen over the last few years, a lot of micro mobility. So whether scooters, um, dockless bikes, mopeds, um, change the way people commute. And if that is better than just, you know, driving a single occupancy vehicle um, for sing, for independent trips. Um, and so if done well, you know, I think there's a lot to be shared and understood about the future of universal basic mobility, but I think a solid program would be able to do all of those things well. And so we're going to focus on two pilots that started in 2021, um, one in Pittsburgh and one in Oakland. Nemo, I think that is a great um, conversation about the criticisms. Is it to save time? Is it to save money? But then the focus on where we are in terms of our neighborhood design. Um, and I think any plan um, for mobility that doesn't consider how the land use is done and the zoning is done in that particular region is doing the people a disservice. Because if you're going to provide someone um, you know, however much money, however many hundred dollars a month to ride the bus system or to ride the train system, but the train runs every 45 minutes or runs every hour or it doesn't stop where they need to go, then it is not only a waste of funds, but also is not a good use of um, that person's time or that person's energy. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you said that, because um, as I look through these two examples, um, you know, I don't know what all of Oakland's landscape looks like. I don't know. I, I wasn't able to do research into what some other kind of transportation plans are. Um, but, you know, to have, I think a lot of the programs that are included with their pilots are very ambitious. You can carpool, you can use bike share, you can use mopeds, you can use scooters. And I was thinking like, what is, what is the infrastructure to use that? Um, is it there? Do people feel safe, especially if it's targeting a group that may have not traditionally used these type of modes if they were used to just using their own vehicle, but perhaps having their own vehicle got to be expensive or perhaps taking Ubers got to be expensive and now they wanna explore these other options, but it took me a long time to get on a scooter. Like, <laughs> and that was on a closed open street event that I was able to get used to it. And then other times I've been kind of on trails. So if someone was like, I'm going to give you $100 to use a scooter every month, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I would actually feel like brave enough to use it. No, that's a real thing. I believe in our last episode, the Women in Planning episode, uh, one of our guests mentioned that from her job, she gets a free bus pass that she can ride the bus anywhere. And I believe it was in Oakland and she doesn't use it. She doesn't ride the bus because to her, the bus feels unsafe. And so that is a resource that is available to her that even if it was free, even because it is free, she just doesn't use it because it's not a safe mode of transportation for her. Right, exactly. Um, so getting into the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania example, they utilize mobility as a service to, um, to have their universal basic mobility pilot. And so the mobility as a service is an option that's available to all residents. Um, and they're doing that for two years and it started in July. And mobility as a service, um, the way Bloomberg described it is it's like the transportation equivalent of Netflix. So it's a monthly subscription fee that gives you access to multiple mobility services on a single platform. And so they're using the transit app. Some of our listeners may be familiar with that. I think that app traditionally would just show you when buses are going to be available, or you can also use it to plan your trip of um, using transit, whether that's train or bus. Um, that was how that's 
traditionally how that app worked, but now it's a digital platform where people can use it to book and reserve different modes of transportation. I will note that a successful example of mobility as a service was found in Finland. They have an app called WIM. And so through that app, it, you can pay $50 a month for a limited service using public transit and bike share and ride sharing, or you can spend 500 per month for a full ride sharing service that would replace your personal car ownership and then also unlimited options with transit and bike share. So just to think about what the future of that could look like in the US is what they're already doing in Finland. And so Pittsburgh is actually the first in the nation to give access to the, this level of transportation choices. Um, and it was a collaboration between the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective um, and they are working together to provide a lot of those options. And so it includes bike share, bus transit, electric moped, e-scooter, Waze carpool, and Zipcar car sharing. And so, as I mentioned, this is available to all Pittsburgh residents, but there is a side pilot within the program that it was given to 100 lower income individuals to use it as well. And so they have had some success in the program that they've noted. Um, but since it did start uh, last summer, um, there's still a lot more to be determined about what the success of the program will look like. Can you clarify for me if your subscription, it's a one-time payment for the month and you can use all of those systems on the same, um, I'm not going to call it a ticket, but like once you make that payment, you can use Zipcar, you can use Waze, you can use the e-scooters. Yeah, so that was kind of how it works in the Finland example, but for Pittsburgh, I believe you still pay as you use the service. So you would pay individually for your scooter, um, for your scooter booking, or you would pay individually if you do Zipcar, or you would pay for your specific bike share trip. So I believe it's still separated out um, and not on a monthly payment option yet. Okay, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, and then the other example um, that we looked at was Oakland, California. So they did things a little bit differently. They did not use a mobility as a service method where you can kind of get all of your options in one place, um, but they issued prepaid debit cards to 500 participants in East Oakland. And the way that participants had to get, this, get access to these funds is they would complete a survey um, and uh, it was selected randomly. And so if they completed the survey prior to October, 2021, they received, if they were, and if they were randomly selected, they received the first $150. And then they had to complete a second survey in January of 2022 to receive the second tranche of $150. And so that card can be used to pay for transportation services, such as their transit buses, um, the BART trains in the Bay area, um, WETA Ferries, I don't know if I'm saying that right, W-E-T-A is the acronym, um, their bike share program, Bay Wheels, and electric scooter share, Link Lime, or Via Ride. So those are the options that are included in that program. Um, and then Oakland also offers a means-based discount transportation program if you qualify for other assistance programs, such as SNAP, um, which is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Programs. So, you know, what this program, you know, seemingly goes on for a year. It first started in October and it will go until December of this year. And the, it's kind of like you get the money and then you get the money. But I think I'm curious to see what their findings will be. And I believe that they partnered with Bert, with UC Davis um, to look at those results. But I know some 
transit and I feel like Jasmine and I were talking about this just a few days ago the cost of like a monthly metro pass can I've paid over $200 for a monthly metro pass in the DMV area um, so I can only imagine what it is in other cities and so I wonder I'm just curious how this funds are how these funds are being used so far and if it is making an impact to how people get to jobs or how people get to resources it's interesting that and I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with the Bay Area, but I can speak to like the New Jersey, New York metropolitan area. So we have a ton of um, different transit providers. You have MTA that does the subway. You have LIRR that does the Long Island one. You have NJ Transit issue from New York to New Jersey. You also have Port Authority has their PATH train. All of them have different payments, right? So you can't use your, you can use your Metro card on the PATH train, but that's only if you buy a single ride Metro card or you buy a monthly Metro card. But if you buy a monthly Metro card in New Jersey for the PATH train, you can't use it on the MTA subways. You buy a I monthly, never knew that. On a monthly NJ Transit train ride, you then don't have access to the MTA system. And so for a commuter from New Jersey, when you get off at 34th Street, everybody doesn't work. Most people don't work by 34th Street. And so you still have to get on the subway. So... I think relate. I think that these are great pilot programs, and these will really be helpful, especially to persons of lower incomes. I think a big another issue related to this is the interconnectedness of the region, and we have to think about regional planning and how even just our payment systems are consistent across the board. I think a lot of that is changing how people can pay with like Apple Pay at the the turnstile, but that also has you know age and. Um, ability and uh, other income considerations. People don't have debit cards and different things like that. But I think a one card that enables you to move in between different transit providers in your region. Yeah, I wonder if that's part of the reason why, well, it seems like, you know, in Pittsburgh, they have the option where you can likely just have one method of payment attached to the, to the app, and then you can pay for these services. But I wonder if Oakland opted for a prepaid debit card method because there is differences in how you use and obtain ride, you know, rides for these different programs. Um, but I think, you know, expanded options and just ease of how you get to one place to another, especially if you're commuting from outside of the city, which we've talked about a lot of um in past episodes, a lot of people, they're not living outside of the city because they maybe want to, but that may just be what they can afford. And so when looking at who's coming into large urban cores and how they're able to get there without spending an arm and a leg um, is important to think about. Um, and so I know that these programs are collecting a lot of that demographic information. So hopefully it can be used to improve mobility um, for, for all people, regardless of where they live. Um, and then just a few more things that I wanted to touch on that we kind of started talking about already in terms of why is this important and why should we be thinking about it. Um, universal basic mobility is kind of framed around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that being the right to freedom of movement. Um, but even when we look at also recent events in the last two years of I feel like COVID has made transit systems, there's a lack of, in, there was previously, you know, widely a lack of investment in transit. Um, and then now ridership is not the way that it was pre-COVID, which has hurt a lot of transit um, agencies as well. Um, and then I think with single occupancy vehicles or just traveling in a car alone to get from A to B 
there are now other modes of transportation that I mentioned, like micromobility, that are presenting new options and diversifying the technology that we use to use the diversifying the technology that we use to get from places. Um, I know a lot of cities still have stationary bike share stations, but that almost feels like it's of the past. Like that was like 10 years ago, we were doing stationary bike share, but now it's all about being able to get a scooter or get a bike wherever you are. Um, and I think also too, thinking about employment and access, I think these types of pilots can make it easier for people to have options to get to work. Um, and so I think these pilots are happening at a good time where we can think about the new normal and not trying to get back to the way things were before COVID. I think the phrase universal basic mobility may serve itself as a barrier to getting more of these programs um, implemented because I know that term universal basic income is like, you know, super progressed people don't want to touch that as a topic. And so I think the goal of it, right, is the freedom of movement, freedom of mobility. And so I think anything, any type of program that provides um, not just financial resource people to use various transportation modes, but also improves the quality of that experience. That's what we were talking about in terms of the land use, right? What good is the system giving you $300 if, you know, to use all of these non-driving, non-self-driving modes when that's the fastest and the cheapest and most efficient way for you to get to work anyway. And so um, can this be used? You know, we're in an age right now where gas... <laughs> I was going to say, can that prepaid card be used at Shell, Exxon, BP? Right, because gas is hitting. And if gas, Nemo is, is having this discussion. We were talking about this before because I was looking into taking the train to go to work. And I realized that the monthly train pass was going to cost me more than I spend monthly on gas. And for me, as a as someone who studied planning, someone who cares about the environment, that was disheartening because I want to not drive my vehicle. I want to save emissions. I want to, you know, have traffic safety, um, but it's not cost effective, nor is it efficient. And so while I would love to use a program, driving is still the most efficient method. And so improving transit and other transportation services, especially in communities that have the longest commutes and the lowest and lower incomes is in itself an effort towards universal basic mobility. Because we have to remember that part of the reason why these services are needed are because of the lack of investment in lower income and minority neighborhoods for transit services, bike share systems, and all those things. And so now we have to create a program to make it accessible, but we could just make the services accessible. Right. And the other thing I wanted to touch on in terms of like how much someone is spending on in terms of their transportation, um, the U.S. Department of Transportation in their 2020 household transportation survey they found that lower incomes are spending more as a part of their household income on transportation than the highest income group in the category in the survey. So the highest income group was those making over $124,000 a year. Um, and so everyone making under that was spending more on transportation as a percentage of their total spending, even though some of these households had or most of the uh, lower income households had less vehicles per household. Um, or even the lowest income group, those making under $24,000 had the highest percentage of no of a household with no vehicles. 
they were still spending 15% of their total spending on transportation, um, whereas the higher income group was spending just 14%. Um, and so every other income group and bracket is spending more on transportation, um, even if their income is not up to that of someone who's in a higher income bracket. That is so unfortunate to hear because I know we already have the housing affordability issue where people are spending more than that kind of target of 30%. And now you're saying 15%, right? For housing. So now we're at 45% of your income just to live and to commute. That seems excessive in my opinion. Right, to get from A to B, which you have to do in the, in any setting. Um, and speaking of from getting from A to B, I just wanted to note too that some of the universal basic mobility options can be limiting to people who have a physical disability. Um, and so I think as there are these public-private partnerships between what's offered, I think cities should definitely have options to include wheelchair accessible vehicles as an option to pay for or additional payment options for non-emergency medical transportation services um, if they do have a medical condition that requires them to have more doctor's appointments. Um, because you can give money to have a, you know, you can put, you can include money for ride sharing like Uber and Lyft, or you can include funds for things like taking the bus. But if you have a physical disability, those are not as easy for you to access. Um, and so I think the last thing I'll say on this is like, it's important that people still feel dignified and empowered to use the services the same way anybody else would, even if they're getting, even if there's a subsidy included in it. Thank you for bringing that up, Nemo, about persons with disabilities and different mobility needs, um, because that's a real thing. And we talked about that before an episode, we hear about that all the time. And in terms of being able to utilize even the bike share systems or the scooter systems or an uber vehicle um and so that is a real uh, issue that has to also be addressed so we're going to switch gears and move from transportation to housing it was great thank you for having me jasmine i feel like we're like each other's guests this yeah <laughs> um so the next thing we're going to talk about is housing so Amazon, the world's largest retailer um, all over the whole world, um, has decided to create a housing equity fund. They launched this early in or late in 2021. Um, I will preface this by saying they received a lot of, um, so Amazon, what was that, 2019 when they did their headquarters to national search? I think it might've been 2018, late 2018, like okay. summer, yeah. So in that year that Amazon was looking for a second headquarters from their uh, Seattle Puget Sound area to somewhere on the East Coast, um, a lot of communities and a lot of advocates pushed back against uh, Amazon headquarters being located in their city or their region because of fears of affordability. We see what how affordability has changed in Seattle. We see how tech companies like Apple and Google have changed the affordability level in place like San Francisco and um, San Jose, California. And so people were weary about having an Amazon headquarters in, in their city. And I believe that's part of the reason why they had selected New York, like Long Island City, and then ended up not moving with New York further. But 
I believe that's part of the reason why Amazon created this fund to support affordable housing. So the fund, it includes $2 billion in the form of grants, loans, and lines of credit to developers, public agencies such as a public housing authority or a housing and mortgage finance authority and nonprofit organizations to build and or preserve affordable housing. And the question might be, what does it mean to preserve affordable housing? Well, low-income housing tax credit program, which we talked about in episode four of this season, is a, a way that affordable housing is created and it has a time limit. So a certain number of years, I think after 15 years, the property um, is, you know, no longer certifies for those tax credits. And so what happens usually is the developer might refinance the building. And so the projects might lose their affordability. So preserving it means that another developer comes in, does another low income housing tax credit certification and extends the affordability for another 15 or 30 years. So, so would you say, I guess because the, the way it is, it's like they can either use it to build new affordable housing or preserve is basically another incentive to utilize to keep it affordable rather than, you know, refinancing and changing the structure of the building. Exactly. Yeah. That's what they mean by preserve. So the financing is targeted for the cities and regions for which Amazon has a large corporate presence. So they have an office in Nashville, Tennessee, which would be their southeast region. Uh, they have an office in or they're building an office in Arlington, Crystal City. Nemo is the resident uh, DMV expert. Is Crystal City or is it Arlington? Um, I believe Crystal City is technically in Arlington or part of Arlington. It's like okay. a neighborhood in Arlington. Okay. So it's in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and then their existing headquarters in the Seattle Puget Sound region, which Nemo is also our resident expert. She's just this is true. all over the place. <laughs> Jeff Bezos has followed me around. <laughs> they hanged up. So the goal is, like I said, to finance the development or preservation of at least 20,000 units of housing and that housing will be affordable to persons earning between 30% and 80% of area median income. In episode four of season two, how to researching your neighborhood, we discussed AMI and we're just gonna do a quick brief over it again. It's the area median income is the midpoint of the region's income distribution where some households, half of the households are above that number, half of the households are below. Um, and so just for preference, or just to clarify, in Nashville, a family of four at 60% AMI is earning a little less than $49,000 a year. In Arlington, Virginia, a family of four is learning at 60% AMI is earning less than $75,600 a year. In D.C., 60% AMI for a family of four is $77,400 a year. And in Seattle, a family of four at 60% AMI is earning less than $71,640 per year. And so that just gives you a scope. So these units that Amazon hopes to finance um, or, or refinance are in that kind of range. I know this probably isn't, you know, you mentioned they chose these cities because of their corporate footprint, but it's very interesting to see the difference in area median income between the 
East Coast and we're like, you know, obviously surrounding the nation's capital and incomes just being higher in that area. And then I feel like Seattle also has a lot of tech industries, whether that be Amazon, Boeing, Microsoft, that also plays an influence on those incomes in that area. And then it was like Nashville was like $20,000 less than, than those regions. And I know that affordable housing is, I guess I'm curious if it is where is it the most pressing? Like, I know it's pressing everywhere, but is it more pressing in these higher income areas or in Nashville? Like, I don't really have a context of what that would be like. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I have a good, you know, finger on the pulse of like, where is it needed more? But I will say when I was looking up these numbers, I was thinking of people that I know and like, would they qualify for this? I'll, I'm always wondering, are the values too high, if that makes sense? Like, is the 60% AMI or rather, is it too low? That's what I'm, that's what I read. I'm always curious, like based on the cost of living in this area, right? Cause the AMI doesn't take into account cost of living. It only takes into account AMI, the income of the people in your area doesn't consider that gas might be $7 a gallon or that, um, you know, groceries are X number. And so it doesn't account for how money is being distributed. So I'm always curious when I look at these AMI numbers to say, well, can what is what does a family of four in Arlington, Virginia, making seventy five thousand dollars a year? What can they get with that? Nemo was mouthing something <laughs> to us. What are you saying? I just know certain households of one who make sixty percent of AMI for a household of four, and it's bleak. It's tough. Is what I is what I hear. So yeah, I do. I have to agree with you. I think it's, I think about them being pretty low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering like, so what this means though, is that if you make, if you're a family of four and you make $76,000, you make too much for these units, but how different are you than a family making 75, 600 and you're still a family of four? I think a family of four make, I feel the same way, Nemo. $76,000 for four of y'all? And these kids got to go to school and they got to eat? Mm, I don't know how we going <laughs> to make it. It just makes me want to deconstruct the this HUD. It's HUD that determines it, right? Yeah, it just makes me want In the it. census, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of systematic issues with it and I think even like you just mentioned the census and HUD those two massive federal systems intertwining that have so much influence on where people can afford to live I think another thing just to harp on AMI one more time is the number of households below right so it takes a median let's just start taking into account that like, yes, it's 50-50, but it doesn't necessarily take into account the need of those other households, right? So if you're a family of four and you make 30, but you're competing for one unit against a family of four that makes 75, that's a lot of competition, if you understand what I'm saying. And so for that one unit, you have people making anywhere between 20000 and 75000 just asking for that one unit. And the question becomes to me, well, who needs it more? And are we, what type of housing are we providing for people at that very low level? 
So moving on from that discussion, that is the target range of the different regions for which um, Amazon is targeting. And because this program started in 2021, we have some good examples. And so I will highlight examples from Seattle, Nashville, and Virginia. Nima, let me know your comments on this. And so in Seattle, the fund includes $285 million in financing. In DC, Northern Virginia, it includes um, $500 million in financing. And in Nashville, it includes $77 million. And so I think, Nemo, to your point, this amount of funding, how it differs by region, is kind of pointing to the need and the cost of building or refinancing housing. That $500 million for DMV is stress. <laughs> it's giving me stress. <laughs> Uh, like it's not enough. You don't think it's enough? <laughs> um, or just that it's the most like it, that because I think um, the differences between um the AMI in Seattle and the DMV was like four thousand dollars. Like it wasn't that much of a difference, but it's almost double the amount. They're doubling the amount of financing. And I don't know if that's potentially based on population. I don't have like the Seattle, uh you know, metropolitan region population in my head right now compared to what the DMV population is, um, or even land area too, I think would be interesting to see how they determine those, those numbers. So that those are the options. Yeah, I was curious about that as well in terms of how did they arrive at these numbers? Um, and that was something I was not able to find. I will say that the director or one of the directors of this fund is a DC native um, and she used to work in the the DC area in their housing space so that is she is at least familiar with the area and its needs and so in Nashville in particular Amazon donated two 0.25 million dollars to the housing fund. Now the housing fund is a nonprofit organization which lends financing to the development of affordable housing in the Nashville area. So they themselves are not a developer. They raise capital and then lend it to various developers in the region to build affordable housing. And so Amazon was part of the investors and they they donated two and a quarter million dollars to this fund other things that this um organization provides are home buyer education services and down payment assistance for single family homes and so it's working on both the renting side of housing but also the home ownership side okay you've rented you saved you improved your credit and now you're ready to buy well for a lot of people buying a home is a new thing. They might not have known people who have also bought their homes, maybe their parents or their grandparents. And so um, home buyer education is a very, very important thing. You want to make sure your interest rates are comfortable for you. You consider all your other payments that you have to make in addition to your mortgage. So very important services. And then in Northern Virginia, DC, Amazon used about, I want to get the number right. So I was actually just going to add too about the home buyer education. Um, that's really good to see that that's included um, because I think it gets to the other end of wealth generation. Like they, they may enter the housing fund nonprofit organi organization as a renter or renting in one of their developments. Um, but then they're also connected to another service that will help them generate wealth later on um, and just have that awareness all in one place, I think is good to see. 
Another thing that they offer in Nashville are community land trusts and community land banks, which to your point, Nemo, like help people build that that wealth that they need um, and build equity in their home. And so in Virginia, Amazon used $40 million to the Washington Housing Conservancy, which is another nonprofit organization, but this organization develops affordable housing. And so they purchased Crystal House, which is like a 16 acre property in Crystal City in Virginia, um, which already exists of affordable housing. And so this is an example of the preservation. So these units would lose, they're no longer, or they are approaching what we call like the end of their eligibility. And so Amazon lent this money to the developer so that they could purchase the property, refinance it, receive more affordable housing tax credits, and then extend the affordability of the building. Because if not, the building would have reverted to um, market rate housing. We would have lost, I can't remember the number of units, but a significant number of units. Um, and so the site, interestingly, is located a couple miles from where Amazon is planning to build their HQ2 in Arlington or Crystal City. And so the funding, though, is, is interesting because sometimes it's a grant like they did to um, the housing fund in Nashville. But for this housing conservancy, because they are a developer, they lent them this money, but they lend it to them. See, going to get a $40 million loan for Bank of America or from Wells Fargo, like Wells Fargo's in the news right now, we, it's very difficult to do. But so Amazon was able to offer them lesser underwriting criteria, a better interest rate, better loan borrowing terms. And different you say things. we, when you say we, you mean black folk? I mean, developers who want to okay. do affordable housing, but yes, also. Black <laughs> okay, I was thinking about the Wells Fargo <laughs> article. I just want to be clear. No, I mean, when I said we, I meant, because I work in this space. So I meant we as people who are developers of affordable housing. Going to get a $40 million loan is excessive. Um, and so Amazon's able to do that because of their leverage. And so. I want to say this before I turn it over, you know, we talk about the remaining of the season, but developers, anyone listening to this call, anyone who works in this space, Amazon is taking applications. Um, so they want to get this money out of the door and they want to lend to developers or nonprofit organizations working in affordable housing in their four um, kind of corporate headquarter offices. And so Go to the website, it'll be in our show notes. If you are an organization, if you're part of an organization, if you know an organization, I want to see everybody, you know, use this funding as it is available. Yeah, I think it seems kind of like when I hear the, like the title of it, Amazon Housing Equity Fund, when you, when I think of like housing and equity and seeing those together, it means, it's like, it means something different when you think about equity in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a home. But I think as I look through really what some of their mission is about the fund, it gets at like equity broadly, as we talk about in, in the public in the public policy and social policy space, which I think is acknowledging historical wrongs um, and acknowledging that there is not an even playing field based on past and present events. Um, and like Jasmine said, they're looking to they're looking to to, to right this wrong and to level the playing field in a lot of ways. 
What do you think of Amazon, a private company, a mega trillion dollar company saying we want to do something about the affordable housing crisis in these regions? Like, what are your associations about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think there's probably always a lot more that they could be doing. <laughs> um, I think this is like a good start. Um, but I'd be curious to see how much they could really expand um, and what impacts they really have um, with the fund. I know it's only been around for a year or so. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what comes to mind. Um, I guess I kind of think about it separately as I mean, yeah, because Amazon is just like Amazon, like <laughs> all encompassing. So my first thought was about the criticism they received when they were doing this search. You know, towns were throwing so much money at them to put their headquarters in their office and in the planning space. I'm like, why are you just like we had the sports episode? It was like literally a sports stadium, but a headquarters. That was my first thought. But I think it's a good charge. I love philanthropy, corporate social responsibility is like a really important thing. And I think corporations that have a big footprint in a place have some level of responsibility to improving that neighborhood and at least, you know, not causing any harm. I'm always curious, you know, I know. Right. So these are where their headquarters offices are, but they have warehouse offices Whew, everywhere that you could think right, of. Um, right. And so I'm curious about, you know, could their warehouse workers afford to live in these areas? You know, warehouses are usually at the fringes of cities. And so they're more in like first ring or inner ring suburbs. But like even those places are affordable. And so could your, I know Amazon pays for what I would consider relatively, relatively where I believe in this area, you can get like 18 or so dollars an hour, but I don't believe that that's enough. You know, if you're doing a 40 hour shift there or in a week, I don't know if that's even enough to rent an apartment here. Um, and so th that's what I thought of as well. It's like, are you taking care of your house before you take care of the world? Yeah, no, I think those are great questions. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe that's a, maybe we do a, like a work, force episode next season. Um, I think that would be interesting to explore what sorts of things are available for their employees and their massive workforce. Um, so now we wanted to transition and talk about our favorite moments from season two, just like that. We started this season um, in November um, and now four months later, I guess four months later, we are all done and we've cover we've tried new things we saw lessons from season one um we tried to incorporate feedback um and our own observations to stay current with issues that you all care about um and we're just super grateful for all of our listeners this season um and i think we got a lot of new listeners a lot of new followers a lot of new engagement um a lot of new collaborations and topics um, so Jasmine, what were some of your favorite episodes from the season or favorite moments? I really liked our planning tools episode. Um, we made a point to try to get on this real space on Instagram. So check out our Instagram page to see our reels and, and like those and engage with those. But I really liked the planning 
um, tools episode, which was episode four, how to research in your neighborhood. To me, the episode felt like it really encompassed the mission of the podcast, which is to literally provide tools for everyday people to combat uh, systemic issues and institutional racism and classism and sexism and ableism. And so I feel like that episode really gave our listeners the tools literally that they needed <laughs> exactly what we said in the beginning and so I really appreciated that episode yeah it's like hard for me as I look through <laughs> it's it's almost hard for me to pick I mean just working backwards I really enjoyed our episode that came out earlier this month um, that we did for women's history month I thought that was a really authentic conversation that we had um, about what it's like to make decisions in public space as a woman. Um, I enjoyed our conversation with Dan Cornfield um, around public safety and mental health. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think those were some of my, and then also the panel that we had um, earlier this season around careers in planning um, and the diversity that you can have, um, regardless of what you study or what you focus on in planning. Um, so I know I didn't choose one, but those were some of my, those were some of my favorites. Um, I literally can't think of one episode that like, didn't, you know, strike something or make me think about, um, something differently as we did our research or had conversations. And so I hope it was able to spark the same, um, light bulb for all of our listeners too. And so we will be taking a break from dropping episodes every other Tuesday, but we will still be here. Uh, we hope to remain active on Instagram and on Twitter. So please, if you see any articles, you see any issues, retweet them to us, DM us. Oh, we have our newsletter. How do they join the newsletter, Nemo? Yeah, so in the show notes, you can um, click the link that says join or subscribe. <laughs> um, and then you can also in our social media bios, uh, you can click our link tree um, to subscribe that way as well. So we will also be reaching out to those folks as well as we take a break until next fall, or this coming fall, we will be back in fall for my northeast people that's early winter. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I'm gonna we'll talk Nemo. <laughs> I know I'm like, you can keep listening to us every other Tuesday, but you know, we're going, we're going to wrap it up now. Oh, wow. We don't have to say our ending. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm omitting it today. <laughs> Peace out y'all.